0: Well, you can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians 15. If you've been joining us for our midweek uh, study of 1 Corinthians 15, you're like, wait, 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 wait a second. It's Sunday. I think you're mixed up. Uh, I'm not. This is on purpose. So uh, we had Easter last week, and we have this, uh, as I'm going through the 1 Corinthians 15 series we're doing on Wednesday night, I just thought that this message being about our resurrection, uh, would be a good one to come after the message about Christ's resurrection. So if you haven't been following along on Wednesdays, I'm going to give you enough context where you will not feel like you don't know what's going on uh, here this morning. Uh, if you have been following along on Wednesdays, then then you need to hear this in order to know what's going on this coming Wednesday, all right? Uh, so if you haven't been following along on Wednesdays and you'd like to start, well, you hear this morning and then you can, uh, you can catch back up uh, with us this, this Wednesday night. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 35 here in a moment. Wherever you find biblical faith, you will find skeptics, okay? Wh- wherever you find God at work and people believing God, then you will find people there who are critical of those who believe God and who doubt God. You see this in the scriptures with the scribes and the Pharisees constantly trying to undermine the work of Christ. Critical skeptics that want to keep other people from believing Christ and following Christ. You see it in history with movements like the first Great Awakening. As the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards tore through the American colonies, many clergymen turned their nose up at the movement. They said it was nothing more than emotionalism. There was no real fruit coming from the revival, and they were critical skeptics. And we see it today. Uh, we all know people who are skeptical of the idea that God is truly at work. Where even if you were to just say uh, a one line in a conversation, let's say you were talking to an unbelieving friend or family member about money, and you were to say, well, I know God's going to provide, and they, they might scoff at you just the idea of you even bringing his name up or bringing up his provision. Friends and family and neighbors, and, and hey, maybe even people we go to church with sometimes. There were plenty of skeptics in the Corinthian church when it came to the resurrection of the body. Paul had already taught to them about this. He had already taught them good doctrine about Jesus' resurrection and about their own resurrection but they had started to listen to skeptics and it was causing confusion in the church some of those skeptics might have been influenced by a philosophical cult that was very influential in first century greek culture called gnosticism and in the worldview of gnosticism everything that is physical is evil including your own body everything that is spiritual is good So that was the worldview at the heart of that false teaching. So, of course, any Gnostic would be turned off by the idea that God is going to resurrect your physical body and that you would live in a physical resurrected body for the rest of eternity. Nothing could sound worse to a Gnostic, and so when they heard that teaching, they would have scoffed at that, and they would have been skeptical of it, and they would have sought to undermine it. So there's a good chance that the confusion that existed in the Corinthian church was a result of that. However, it also could have been because of popular teachings from some of the most famous rabbis of the first century. Uh, who were teaching that when we resurrect, our bodies will be exactly the same. They will not change at all. So when Paul starts to teach about a resurrection, which includes our bodies transforming, then they would have doubted that teaching. Those are the practical reasons for the skepticism. But before we start the, the message and we read the passage here, we should know that at the heart of all skepticism is sin. At the heart of all efforts to doubt God and undermine God is sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed against, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Skepticism is an attempt to suppress the truth in the heart that we might be able to go on with our sin. God is sovereign and I am sinful, but if I can suppress the truth of His sovereignty, then I can make my intellect sovereign. And then ultimately, if my intellect tells me I'm a good person, well then I don't need to change. Right? So, uh, what lies at the heart of all skepticism is the desire to write God out of the equation. But Paul is combating the questions of the skeptics in this passage this morning. I'm going to read for us starting in 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, verse 35 but someone will ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come you foolish person what you sow does not come to life unless it dies and what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain but God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown? is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual the first man is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Father God, this is your holy word, and I pray, God, that, uh, that just as the rain falls down from the sky and it lands on the soil and it produces fruit, I pray that the 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 rain of your word would uh, come down upon our hearts and that it would produce fruit in our hearts this morning be with me as I speak be with us all as we listen it's in Jesus name we pray amen Paul's dealing with two questions from the skeptics two objections from the skeptics and those questions we find in verse 35 how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? And Paul doesn't necessarily deal with them in sequence. He just kind of addresses both objections in verses 36 through 49 as we go. And as he does it, he speaks to the plausibility of resurrection, to the potency of resurrection, and to the pattern of resurrection. So we're going to touch on all three this morning, and we start with this, the plausibility of resurrection. Paul's going to make two illustrations from nature in order to, uh, in, in order to position his argument, and, and here's our first point for the morning uh, as we look at these illustrations. Number one, The created world shows us the plausibility of resurrection. The created world shows us the plausibility of resurrection. And when I say resurrection, I'm talking about our resurrection. We can have no resurrection without the resurrection of Christ, but we're talking about our resurrection. The two illustrations from nature have to do with gardening and have to do with variety. And everybody, when it comes to the gardening illustration, kind of would have understood what Paul is talking about as he writes because unlike us, they lived in a very agrarian society. And uh, as Paul makes an agricultural uh, illustration here, they would have identified with that. They would have understood it. They, they generally understood how agriculture worked, how planting and, and, and reaping and sowing and farming and all of that came together. They all saw... Animals and they all saw heavenly bodies in the sky, they could relate to what Paul was saying on that end as well. And Paul is doing what Jesus was known for doing he's taking everyday objects and ideas and he's using them to teach eternal lessons. So, the gardening illustration in verses 36 through 38 there's three ways that the process of planting seeds in a garden or a field relates to our resurrection. First of all, it relates to it in terms of life and death and growth we get an axiom in verse 36 an axiom is something that's so true nobody would ever even question it nobody would ever even seek to argue with it even a skeptic so he says in verse 36 what you sow does not come to life unless it dies and that is true you can't argue with that when you plant a seed in the ground the seed must decompose. If there's going to be life in the form of a plant, then the seed must decompose. You hear the same idea from Jesus in John 12 when He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And He says this in relation to His body. He was crucified on Good Friday. The seed of His earthly body was placed in the tomb. And just like when you grow crops, there has to be the end of what was before there can be the new beginning. It was the end of Jesus' pre-cross body, but Easter marked the beginning of His resurrection body, and He still wears that body as He sits at the right hand of the Father this morning. It's no different for those of us who follow Him. When you die... The seed of your old body will be placed in the ground. And when he returns, your resurrection body will be raised. We lost Katie's grandmother last year. We loved very much. And she loved Jesus, man. Mammy loved the Lord. And when Pastor Brad Russell, her pastor, uh, put her body in the ground, he said this is her final resting place. But he didn't stop there. He said until Jesus returns and her body is resurrected. It's her final resting place until the return of Christ. It's her final resting place until the resurrection. And then her body will be raised. It is not her final resting place. Just her final resting place until resurrection. There's a parallel also between resurrection and gardening in the way in which our bodies change forms. In verse 37, Paul makes it clear that the body that goes in the ground will not be the same when it is resurrected. Much like the plant that comes from the seed that you place in the ground, uh, it comes out a very different form from the seed. Your body is going to go into the ground and then when Jesus uh, resurrects it, your body will look different, will have a different form. It's kind of like a mustard seed. It's tiny. You put it in the ground, but the form that comes from it, the tree that comes from it, is very big. It is transformed. When we read about Jesus' resurrected body, it seems to be different from our bodies. And one of the greatest pieces of evidence is how His disciples and His followers often did not recognize Him after the resurrection until He revealed Himself to them. Which shows us there was a marked change in the body of Christ. And yet, that being said, it's not like there is no connection between Jesus' body before the crucifixion and the body that walked out of the tomb on Easter morning, which is why Paul deals with continuity in verse 38. It says, but God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Though Jesus' body had changed forms, once He revealed Himself to His followers, they knew who He was. They weren't like really? You know, they, they went, oh, it's you, Lord. They, they knew who he was. So his appearance was veiled, but it was not completely hidden beyond all recognition. And so in the same way, our bodies will die, our bodies will change form, but they will still be our bodies. So when you put all this together, Paul's using this agricultural language to teach that resurrection comes after death. And when it comes, our bodies will change, and yet they will have a connection to the way that they were before. He uses a second illustration in verses 39 through 41 to teach about differentiation between our bodies now and our resurrected bodies. In verse 39, Paul says that all flesh is not the same. And clearly, that's the case. There are humans, and there are animals, and there are birds, and and there are fish, and they're all very different. Even within humans, and, and listen, Dr. Tim Gardner, you're going to have to talk to me afterwards to make sure I got this right, okay? But even within humans, okay, from what I understand, there are five different types of healthy skins. There's healthy dry skin, and healthy oily skin, and healthy normal skin, and skin that's a combination of dry and oily, and skin that is healthy but sensitive. And, and, and so even within the, the human race, there's all different types of skins, Then you compare our skin with the scales of fish and with the fur of animals and the feathers of birds, and you can see the variety in God's creation, which shows just how powerful He is. In verses 40-41, through Paul talks about the different types of heavenly bodies. You have the stars in the sky. You have the sun, which is a giant star as well. You have the moons, which reflect the glories of the stars. You have the planets. But all the differentiation in the heavenly bodies speak to us about the power of the One who made them and the One who sustains them. And Paul's point in the illustration, in the variety of the creatures on the earth and the hosts of the heavens above, is to show us the power of the God who made it all. In Habakkuk 3.3, 3, it says, His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. And likewise, when our current bodies are raised in resurrected form, the differentiation in the two bodies will bring glory to God. It will display His power. The same way the differences in creation right now display His power, the change that will take place from our bodies now to our resurrected bodies will display His power. So as the skeptics argue and say, resurrection is nonsensical. Paul points them to nature. He points them to agriculture, He points them to the differences and all the, 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 the different um, types of creatures he's created on the earth and their skin, and he points to the differences in the heavens. And he says, "No, no, no, it's plausible. We see the plausibility of resurrection in the created order. We see that our resurrection is plausible. In the way that a seed dies and produces life, in the way that a seed changes forms, in the way that a seed, though it changes forms, still has continuity to the plant that it produces. We see this differentiation in creation. We know it's not a big jump in logic to say that God will raise our current bodies to have a different form in the age to come in order to glorify Himself. So this is a case for plausibility that Paul has made. For the second time in chapter 15, he he makes a case for the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus in the first 11 verses, and then his resurrection is the first fruit. There's a harvest to come. The harvest to come is the resurrection of the church. And now he's arguing for the plausibility of the resurrection of the church. Let's keep going. We've talked about plausibility. Number two, our transformation shows us the potency of resurrection in verses 42 through 44 the potency of resurrection there are four transformations we can anticipate as we wait on our resurrection we see the first one in verse 42 in resurrection the perishable is raised imperishable it's kind of depressing to think about but as soon as you are born your body starts to die that's the last thing in the world you're thinking about when you're holding that little baby in that hospital room right and yet, that is the truth. And there's a little reminder there. I remember with all three of our children, we got them, we got them home, they were so cute. And you go to change their diaper, and you're like, look how cute they are and their little fingers and their little toes. But there was a little reminder to you that, they're in a, that, that, that all that cuteness is packed into a perishable body. And it is their dying, rotting umbilical cord that is sitting there right above the diaper line. It's a, it's a nasty little reminder to you that this body they're in Though it is new and fresh and cute and giggly, it is not going to last forever. Even the healthiest people we know cannot stop the aging process. I'd love to know what Betty White did to live that long. You know what I mean? But even Betty White couldn't stop the aging process. No matter how well we steward our bodies, at some point, these bodies will break down. And this is a result of what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. Because what sin did is it brought death with it. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20 says, All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, all return. Your body is a perishable body. But when Jesus returns, these perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. Which is why Paul says in uh, chapter 15, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed there must be a change from the perishable to the imperishable that which is perishable cannot go on for eternity so god must give us the imperishable and praise the lord he has in First Peter three, or First Peter one, verse three, Peter says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And our resurrection bodies are a part of that imperishable inheritance. They will not deteriorate. They will not decay. They will not get sick. They will not die. And that is because Christ has swallowed up death for us by rising from the dead after He suffered for our sin. In resurrection, what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. You see this in verse 43. God created you for honor. God has wired you to honor Him. If you don't honor God, you'll honor something. You will find something to bow down to. You will find something to give your life to. The sin that took place in the garden has separated us from God. It has altered our very nature so that it is no longer our inclination to honor God the way He has made us to honor Him. Our inclination is to dishonor God. And we dishonor him every day in our sinning. And we dishonor him every day in failing to serve him by misusing and abusing these bodies that we have, by not loving the people that are around us. Even on our absolute best days, we know we have fallen short and we have to come to God again and confess our sin and trust in his grace and in his mercy to forgive our sin. But when we are resurrected, our original design will be recovered. And what was dishonorable will be raised in glory. And our new resurrection bodies will be free from the chains of sin and death. And we will be free to honor God forever. With no more hurdles in the way. No more walls to jump over. No more flesh to tear down. And Paul says we'll be raised in glory because the resurrection life that awaits us is glorious. It's a glorious life. A glorious eternal life where our bodies are perfected for the purposes of serving our God and pleasing our God and worshiping Him and loving Him. We want to do that now in these current bodies and yet so often our flesh fights against us and our current bodies are vessels of dishonor. But our new bodies will be undiluted vessels of honor and glory. Can't wait for that. In resurrection, what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. You see this in verse 43 weakness is a hallmark of our current bodies to be human is to experience weakness in a mortal body when paul talks about our current bodies he talks about them like fragile jars of clay he's talking about how we have the gospel in second corinthians 4 and it's a treasure But he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Meaning that God has designed it so that when you and I serve him and proclaim the gospel in these weak, frail, mortal bodies, and there is amazing eternal kingdom work being done where lives are being changed, God's designed it in such a way where people look at the bodies the message is coming out of and they go, well, it can't be that. I I can't be, uh, that's not what I should be praising, because that looks just as beaten and broken down as the thing I'm wearing, right? So there's got to be a greater power working through that jar of clay over there that looks like my jar of clay, and then all the glory goes to God instead of going to the bodies that are transporting the message around the world. But when our new bodies are raised, they will be raised in power. They will not be weak jars of clay, Martin Luther said this about the bodies we will have in glory. As weak as it is now, without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives, so that not a thing will be impossible for it if it has a mind for it, and it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float here below on earth or above in heaven. That is beautiful and poetic. Listen, I don't know if our new bodies are going to be able to float back and forth across the plane of heaven and earth, okay? I I, I don't know, and I'm not sure Martin Luther knew, but what I do know is that the weakness that so often plagues us in the here and now will be gone. And I think that that's the bottom line of what Luther was getting at. Our bodies will be raised in power and then we will use that power to serve our, our King, Jesus, forever. In resurrection, what is sown as a natural body will be raised as a spiritual body. Right now, we have natural bodies designed for this natural world. And they possess all the limitations of the natural world. Now, that's not to put down the bodies that God has given us. Our bodies are miraculous. Our our, our bodies are, are a walking testimony to His supernatural sustaining power every single day. However, they're made for one realm. And that's this one. The natural realm. But when Christ resurrects us, we will have spiritual bodies made for a spiritual realm. Listen to Jesus in Luke 20. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection." The Greek word for that phrase, equal to angels, in Luke 20, is better translated like angels. We're not going to be angels, so when you hear people say, you know, their, their Aunt May dies, and Aunt May's got her wings, and she's an angel in heaven now. She's not an angel in heaven. It's even better than that. Okay? She's not an angel. She'll be like angels. Angels are made for the spiritual realm, and they're made to serve in that realm. So after the resurrection, what Jesus is saying is that our bodies will be suited to serve Him in the spiritual realm forever, much like the angels are suited to serve Him. And after the resurrection, those bodies will be equipped for glorious, heavenly, worshipful, supernatural work in the presence of Christ, just as angels are equipped for that work in the presence of Christ. It was hard for the Corinthians who were believing the skeptics to understand why anybody would want to be resurrected, especially if they had bought into that worldview that saw everything physical as evil, including resurrected bodies. But that's because they didn't understand how God was going to show off and will show off His power in our resurrection our resurrection will put on display the potency of Christ. And when we talk about the potency of Christ, we say that He is not just potent, He is omnipotent, right? He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And His all-powerful strength will be on display when He takes us from the perishable to the imperishable and dishonor to glory and weakness to power and natural to spiritual. The resurrection of the church will bring about an incredible transformation that could only be produced by an all-powerful Messiah King. Now let's look at the final section for the morning. Verses 45-49. through Paul sets up a comparison between Adam and Jesus and it enables us to make our final point, number three. We've talked about the plausibility of the resurrection and the potency of resurrection. Number three, the first and final Adam shows us the pattern of resurrection. In Genesis 1, we meet the first Adam. The one Paul's talking about in verse 45 when it says the first man, Adam, became a living being. Genesis 1 verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So God made Adam from the dust and he is in the garden and then it is not good for man to be alone so he makes Eve from Adam's rib and gives him a partner, gives him a wife and they live in natural bodies under the authority of God and it was good. It was good. However, uh, it was not long until they sinned against God and they were ousted from the garden. By the way, them being ousted from the garden was God's mercy to them. Because if they stayed in the garden in their sin and they ate from the tree of life, then they would have lived in that state of sin forever. So God ousting them from the garden was gracious and it was merciful as much as it was disciplinary. But Paul tells us about another Adam in verse 45. This time it's not the first Adam. It's the final Adam, the last Adam, and this is Jesus. It says the last Adam became a life giving spirit. Paul's talking about Jesus. He's eternal, he didn't become a living being. But through his death and through his resurrection, the final Adam became a life-giving spirit. So uh, I read this earlier uh, from Romans 5, starting in verse 17. But what Paul is saying there is, if because of Adam's sin, death reigned in the world, how much more will righteousness reign through the the grace of Jesus Christ? If Adam's sin led to condemnation for all people, then Jesus' act of redemption leads to life for all people who believe. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul's point here is that we inherited our sinful earthly bodies from Adam, but in Christ we inherit spiritual resurrection bodies spiritual is not the first the natural is the first the spiritual will come after the natural just like the plant comes after the seed and it reminds us of the pattern of the bible it's suffering and then it's glory it's slavery and then it's exodus It's wilderness, and then it's promised land. It's Saul, and then it's David. It's exile, then it's restoration. It's cross, then it's resurrection. And the pattern of our resurrection is natural, and then spiritual. Dishonor, and then glory. First Adam before final Adam. And so Paul elaborates on this in verses 47-49. through Adam the first man, as I mentioned, was literally from the dust. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Jesus, the final Adam, is from heaven. He lived on earth in a body like ours, but he is from heaven. In our first birth, we have inherited a natural body from Adam. A body of the dust, as men and women of the dust. And along with that body, we inherited his sin nature. We bore Adam's image by more than just being human. We bear his image by committing his sin. So this is why Jesus says in John 3 that you need to be born again. Because the first body you've inherited is a broken down vessel of dishonor, right? That will one day come under God's judgment because along with that uh, body of the dust that you inherited from Adam, you also got a sin nature with it. So Jesus looks at us and says, that birth needs a rebirth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need a second birth. We need a new birth. In fact, I shouldn't use that term rebirth. A new birth. A new image. This is what God has given us by His grace in Christ. So from the final Adam, what God is doing is He's producing a new heritage. From Christ, God is producing a spiritual heritage. And when you repent of your sin and you put your faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior, you experience that new birth. You're born again in the image not of the man of dust, but of the man of heaven. You're born again in the image of Christ, the final Adam. You're freed from your sin nature. You're actually able to please God just like Jesus pleased His Father. You're enabled to truly be able to obey Him. No longer people of the earth, a citizen of heaven. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. But everything I've just talked about there is only the spiritual side of that new birth. And that is wonderful. Glory to God for it. But to get to the crux of Paul's teaching in this text, you've got to talk about the physical side of the new birth. Because one day, Jesus is going to come back and He's going to bring His church from the grave and our physical bodies will bear the image of the resurrected Son. We don't just bear Jesus' image in the sense that our sin nature is broken. We will bear His image in the sense that our resurrected body will be like His resurrected body. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We will be changed, and when we are, our resurrected bodies will be like His resurrected body. First John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall all be changed, and we shall be like Him. We've borne the image of Adam in this life, but we will bear the image of Jesus forever in the age to come. I think Paul's teaching to silence the skeptics here also does a job for people who are here this morning that have been suffering and are struggling to find an anchor in the midst of the waves of suffering. In our suffering, we identify with so much of Jesus' life on this earth. The things that Paul mentioned, weakness, dishonor, death, These are things that hound us down and chase us throughout this life, but these are things that Jesus, as our great high priest, experienced. Jesus experienced weakness in his body. When he's being tempted by the devil after fasting for 40 days, and he's he's out there in the wilderness, he felt weakness in his body. You see him having the need to take a nap in the Gospels, because there was weakness in his body. He experienced the weakness of having a body that is made in the image of Adam. He experienced dishonor. Not dishonor in the sense that he was dishonoring God, but he experienced dishonor in the sense that people dishonored him again and again. And of course, he experienced death. So these things that Jesus experienced, we experience in this life. And the older that you get, seems like it's just waiting for you more and more. Every day you wake up and there's weakness and dishonor and death saying, so what do you want to do today? Right? Just ready to hound you down again. Paul talked about his own ministry in this terms. He said, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Just earlier in chapter 15, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So even in Paul's ministry, we can see how he was not exempt from the human experience of suffering. So how does Paul get through it? How did he keep turning the pages of the calendar, knowing that there would be new dangers and new enemies and new flavors of suffering that awaited him in every city? Well, you have to think that what carried him through is the very teaching that he's putting before the Corinthians in this chapter, that he kept turning the pages of the calendar because he knew that he had the eternal hope of a resurrected life granted by Jesus The same hope that we're clinging to. The hope that His weaknesses would be transformed to power. That His dishonor would be transformed to glory. That His death would be transformed to life. And that the body He inherited from the first Adam would be transformed into a body He inherited from the second Adam. And in that body, He will experience power and glory and life forever without interruption in the presence of His Lord. And it's that same promise that carries us through today. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, right? It's perishable. The body is perishable. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then listen to how Paul talks about his suffering. He says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The outer self is wasting away. The inner self is being renewed day by day. But one day, the outer self that is wasting away will be resurrected to a glorious new life, free from the bondage of decay and death. And so we can suffer now. And we could even look at that suffering and say it's light. We could call it momentary because we know that the church of Jesus will be raised to an eternal weight of glory. It's plausible, it's potent, it's patterned for us in the Scriptures. Resurrection is real. It's going to happen. And so let us hold on to that. That what is now is not forever. And that is what is coming in our resurrection life will be forever forever. And we will live in those bodies before our King, serving Him for all of eternity. We look forward to that. Let's pray together now. Father, I just ask that uh, you would be with us as we seek to process this information, Lord. As we seek to take this information in. um, As we seek to understand everything that we have uh, studied in this passage this morning, it can be hard because it seems like it's a long way off. It seems like it's not tangible; like we can't reach out and grab it. It, it feels like um, the idea of not being in this body—that's—that's that's hard to even understand. The idea of of being in uh, a transformed version of this body that will last forever without weaknesses—it's it, hard for us to even imagine because it is. Um, so removed from our experience as humans of the sickness and the weakness and the suffering and and the dishonor and everything that we endure in these bodies and so uh, father i pray that we would not think of it as a uh, pie in the sky as as something that uh, we could dream about will never really happen i pray that when we think about it we would think about it as something that is definitely going to happen because it is that we would think about it as as sure as the sun rising tomorrow And that we would look forward to it, Lord. That we would uh, long for it. That we would cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And that it would propel us through our anxieties. And propel us through our suffering. And and propel us through our weaknesses. And propel us through this life where we are living in this body of death. That is decaying before us. So Father God, I, I, I pray that if we have allowed this doctrine to not be real to our hearts, that we would repent of that. And that we would trust in it. That we would trust in what we read in the Scriptures. And we would say, that's for me. That's a promise for me because I am in Christ. And that we would cling to it. And so, make it real to us, Lord. Um, Let us stand on the truth of your word. And uh, I pray, God, that it would be our motivation to continue to serve you in the here and now, knowing we'll be able to do it forever in a resurrected body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to ask the band to come, they're already here, uh, which is great. Uh, Listen, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, okay, everything that I've talked about is not for you, but it can be for you, okay, these are promises for those who are in Christ, those who believe, so I want to challenge you this morning uh, to really consider eternity. Eternity is a long time, it is a much, much longer time than this, this vapor of a life that we are living we're only going to be in this, this, these bodies compared to eternity for a very, very short little, little wisp of time. And so really consider um, eternity and consider the glorious promises we've talked about this morning and understand they can be yours by agreeing with God that you are wrong in your sin and turning away from sin and turning to him and putting your faith and his son Jesus. That his son Jesus died for your sin on the cross and defeated your sin by rising from the grave. Receive the gift of eternal life and the gift of forgiveness for sin that he offers by repenting and putting your trust in him today. And if you would like to talk uh, about that more, I would love to talk to you about that. I will be out at the meet the pastor table right after uh, the service, but you can also shoot us an email or a text at connect at because we would love to talk to you about having a relationship with Christ so you can have these promises that Scripture offers to you. But let's respond to Him with praise right now. Let's stand and let's sing.